0: This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com rightbook. We are living in stressful times, and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient you just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best for you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelpcom slash writebook today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp H-E-L-P.com slash l p.com/rightbook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening and now back to Just the Right Book I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and keep you up to date with what's happening in the literary world. I had so much fun talking to Ellen Gammerman. Ellen Gammerman is the arts and culture editor for The Wall Street Journal. She put together a fantastic book list from book reviewers, the scout for O Magazine, and it's a really great list. It could give you everything you need to know what to read this winter. And stay tuned after my conversation with Ellen to hear from author, journalist, and Rolling Stone contributor Jeff Goodell, who talked to me about his latest book, The Water Will Come. Jeff details how oceanside places are becoming more and more vulnerable to rising seas due to global warming and climate change. And you might think, yeah, 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 I know that. But what Jeff does is break this down into what's inevitable, what's not inevitable, what can be done, what does this really look like? How many feet will the water really rise? He, he just, it, it reads like fiction. You want to keep understanding what the issue was about. And I learned so much by reading the book and then had the pleasure of talking to him. But first, my chat with Ellen. We are joined today on Just the Right Book by Ellen Gammerman, who covers arts and culture for the Wall Street Journal. So, Ellen, I'm one of these people who reads the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times every day in print. Um, I'm not happy unless I've gotten them both read before I leave the house. And the range of what's covered in the Wall Street Journal in, you know, two or three pages is pretty vast. How do you decide what to cover? Oh, well— you know, we have
1: a pretty small uh, arts and culture team on the news side and we pretty much just go after what we think will be most interesting to readers. We have about two or three pages inside the A section which you just referenced. And um it it really does free us up actually because we're able to think Beyond the immediate news of the moment to bigger stories or, you know, or the news of the moment, we kind of have our pick of what we get to do.
0: And is there like a little committee that decides or you cover like 12 things and then whittle it down to three? Oh, no. Well, how it works is we each
1: have beats and um, we pitch ideas based on what our sources and our reading kind of leads us to. And those pitches we send to our editors, and they give us the green light or not. And that's what ends up getting in the paper. And then also it works the other way, where an editor will have ideas as well. And then through that, we work out a story, and now increasingly... Online packages and sometimes podcasts and videos. And so it, it does become a, definitely a joint
0: effort. You know, it is amazing when I think about journalists today, where it used to be that you just, you know, wrote your piece, submitted it, um, and that was it. I mean, the amount of uh, peripheral work that needs to be done around any article uh, by the journalist, or what I think about any of the major newspapers do, where they're you know, reporting out the story, then they're doing a podcast and they're changing a little bit online and they're including backup research. How difficult is that making your job now?
1: It's exciting because it's uh, it's new ways of reaching people and reaching mm. younger readers and it's essential. It's definitely more work, but you get to work with very creative people who think visually. And that means, you know, some of our art and layout and photo editors are playing a bigger role just in my day-to-day mm-hmm. talking to them about how to present a story so that it will look great on a phone or on your laptop um, or, you know, in the paper as well. But we're pushing stories out online first, and that really is where we're thinking first, is how is it going to look on a screen and what can we do to make it more engaging and more fun to read on a screen.
0: So I read, as I said, the print newspaper. I have a lot of friends who read online and they'll tell me they click through to some other, you know, companion Article And did I know this or that? And there are times I feel like, oh, gee, I'm missing that. But I find my willingness to read a broader range of articles if I'm reading it in print. Yeah. I don't know if I that's think, generally true.
1: I think oh, I, I think a lot of people would agree with you. It's just that serendipity of opening up the newspaper and Seeing what you see, you don't know what you're looking for and, until it's right in front of you. But um, the journal's trying to at least deal with that a little bit by placement of stories on the home page, and also when you're in a story, links to related material that you might find interesting if you're reading about this one particular subject. But it's true. I mean, there's no. I think that's a that's a question that newspapers have to grapple with, is how do you replicate that serendipity?
0: Mm. Coming to serendipity, one of the reasons, I think, among many, that bricks-and-mortar bookstores still exist is it's still considered the ideal place for discovery. And the other, I think, are articles like the one that you did uh, earlier this month called 12 Books to Read, this winter, and then I think there were six more. So, uh, because I think, like, when I read the article, and you were nice enough to ask me which book I recommended, and we can get to that ultimately, I didn't know all these books. And 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 I it made me want to read them. So I think this is a huge service to readers who are, you know, looking what to read next. So tell us how you decided to do this in Tell us a little bit about the books you picked out. Oh, sure. Yeah, this is a format that we've come to really like.
1: We call it One Expert, One Book. And so we go not to the publishers and their PR team, but we go to book experts and voracious readers like yourself, and we ask you a very difficult question. If you can read one book coming up uh, in the next, let's say, in, in, in this case, it was this winter, what is that one book that you would pick? And it forces a sort of an intellectual exercise for our literary experts because it forces them to think, okay, I can't make a, a dozen recommendations. So what is really the, the read that stuck with me so mm-hmm. much? And so um, we got, luckily, a, a great mix of literary fiction, of sort of girl on the train type of books. We've got a book that was called sort of this year's answer to um, The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, we have fictionalized accounts of real-life people and relationships, which is uh, the, one of the books that you recommended. We even have books that seem to uh, nod to what we read about in the newspapers every day, which is one book called The Kremlin's Candidate, by Jason Matthews, which is about uh, these spies hunting down a plot by Vladimir Putin to put a Russian sympathizer in the u s government in the highest echelons of the u s government
0: How so, fascinating
1: yeah, so people so the so the books that these readers chose are very are are great and very diverse
0: you know this this is just sort of an aside, but when uh, all this Russian investigation. Uh, was going on and all the conversation after the election last year, one of the books that my husband and I always considered one of our most intriguing books was a book by the name of Come Nineveh, Come Tyre, uh, which was written by Alan Drury and was a huge book in the 60s and a very much a Cold War book. And it was, the plot there was that it looked like it was a regular candidate running, but actually it was... A communist mm. who the Russians put up, and then it wasn't disclosed that he was a communist until he was elected. Mm. So, I, so I think I actually think the book's out of print, but I'm that's definitely a book that would be fun to pick up.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing. Novelists always seem to be able to predict where the culture will be, and they're mm. writing. You know, they're not writing in the moment. These things can take years, but I often run across these books that just seem to speak to where we are right now and what's on people's minds.
0: Which one of the books that um, somebody came up with that you hadn't read, did you pick up afterwards? Oh,
1: well, let's see. Um, I in, a, Immediately after talking to you, Roxanne, <laughs> I read your recommendation. Good answer. Good I answer. That <laughs> was great. Yeah, there you go. Um, I'd love to hear again, your thoughts on it, because you were so compelling and you loved it so much, but this was the book White Houses by Amy Bloom, who, as you said, is a local author in Connecticut. Um, and it is a novelization of the real relationship between Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok, who was a journalist who was uh, very deeply attached to the First Lady who slept for several years in an adjacent bedroom in the White House. And they had, a you know, according to many accounts, a love affair as well as a very deep friendship. So I immediately picked up that book after talking with you, and I did find it uh, to be very compelling. Mm. Um, and and I know that you felt like it really spoke to friendship in at a, a certain stage of life.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that Amy did so well, and we'll be interviewing her, it'll air once the book is published, which is in February, You know, you don't get a lot of books that depict middle-aged, not necessarily really good-looking, even when they were young. That's not what defined them. And I think what Amy does is sort of open our eyes to, well, of course they experience affection and love and intimacy, middle-aged or older women, the way anybody else would. And she just brings that eye for detail to that, um, in a way that I found very touching. Yeah, and and the fact that it's coupled with this, you know, stellar historical figure of Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, added a, a whole other dimension. Yeah,
1: yeah, and she doesn't um, she doesn't shy away from the romance either, which is hard to picture in your mm. mind as you're reading Eleanor Roosevelt. This really goes against type.
0: Yeah, um, exactly.
1: And and yet, Amy Bloom imagines what. She would have sounded like when speaking tenderly to someone that she that she loves. I mean, it is it's from her imagination, but it's uh, but it's still convincing.
0: Well, the the, the the adjacent bedroom in the White House is actually based on fact, which I found right. riveting. Right. That, that, you know, imagine if that was going on today. What? Right. <laughs> that would be kind right. of crazy. It,
1: yeah, exactly. Well, alert Michael Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> we we'll get to the next, the next book from him.
0: So share another book with us.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I was very excited to talk with Lee Haber, who is a book scout or the book scout for Oprah's book club. So she has tremendous power over what people are going to be reading. Now, she picked out... A book by Laura Lippmann, a former journalist from the Baltimore Sun, actually, and who, who is a thriller writer and sets her books in uh, the Eastern seaboard, usually Baltimore. This one isn't specifically Baltimore, but this book is called Sunburn and it is what, uh, Lee Haber called femme noir. It's mm-hmm. like got this very noirish feeling to it. And you think that it's going to be this classic black widow eat, eats her, eats her victims up and you think she's, you think she's one way and she turns out to be a villain. But it, it, it turns on itself and it's actually not that kind of book. But you're left guessing until the very end. What is this heroine's true nature? Is she a criminal is she an innocent is she a little of both and i thought that uh, laura Lippmann's treatment of it was was just great it's a very well observed book a very literary you know thriller at the same time being a, a real page turner
0: that one caught my eye and you scooped the new york times on the woman in the window
1: oh right well, The Woman in the Window is one that I've been looking at for a while. It's by A.J. Finn, which is a pen name for Daniel Mallory, who is a publishing executive. Uh, when I spoke with Daniel about The Woman in the Window, this is his first book, um, He, I said, well, are, did you go by A.J. Finn so that we might think you were a woman and that this is like another a, a woman writing about female uh, heroines? So Daniel Mallory doesn't seem to mind too much if people assume that he's a woman. He writes from a woman's point of view. He uses the pseudonym of A.J. Finn, which is gender neutral. And he wrote what's now, the last time I checked, at the very top of the bestseller list of this book, The Woman in the Window, which shares a a lot of its DNA with the girl on the train um, because it's got this unreliable narrator in this case it is a new yorker who it has agoraphobia she hasn't left her house in nearly a year and she watches her neighbors from her window and she sees what she believes is a murder across the street through their window but it's unclear if this crime really happened or if it's a product of her tortured mind because she's popping pills and she's drinking too much, uh, and so it, he pulls you along that way in this thriller. And this one was recommended by the director of merchandise at Barnes and Noble, so
0: mm. no
1: wonder it's, it's front and center at at, at Barnes and Nobles. I'm sure.
0: You know we can't keep it. it we can't keep it in stock now. And you know it's a little rear windowy. The movie mm-hmm. and, and the word of mouth is already incredibly buzzy. You know sometimes there's that big leap in the front and then there's disappointment. This one's just like moving moving along. Yeah, a, a number
1: of these came with a lot of advanced buzz. And in addition to knowing how to write a great book, he very smart about the way this book was positioned in the market and the release of it. And the story behind this is that he had written this book and did not tell anyone he worked with that he had, and he submitted it and they bought it or they they were interested in buying it. And it was only until late in the game that he revealed his actual identity. So right. he, he earned his his notice.
0: I would encourage all our listeners to... Take a look at these books that Ellen uh, Gammerman has come up with because it is a brilliant assembly of how you could just get your reading list together for the winter. So, Ellen, I have a couple of other uh, questions if you have a few more minutes. One of the things that's crazy is there are, I think, eight or nine books – that are the basis for Oscar-nominated films. Is that unprecedented to have that kind of, that number of books? You know, it's a big number. I don't know if it's unprecedented. It
1: is definitely striking. Um, And actually, I'm not sure that your list includes Logan, which is a comic book adaptation. It's the very first superhero film to earn a Best Screenplay nomination. So to me, it sort of speaks to the cross-pollinization that is happening across pop culture now. We are, with all of these different platforms, it's just the story, just looking for great stories. Mm. And even, um, you know, in the book world, I'm hearing that editors are reaching out to the makers of certain podcasts to get books made of their podcasts. And some of the Oscar nominees have written their own books, and it's just uh, creative people (laughs) are bleeding into all other mediums, and it just seems like if it's a great story, yeah.
0: yeah. do you think there are more book scouts out there, or do you think the publishers are, you know, as you mentioned, they're reaching out to get their books turned into podcasts, but are they also reaching out to more movie people? I mean, I think the classic one that's in the news a lot now is Reese Witherspoon being— right a huge reader. And, you know, Big Little Lies obviously was based on a book and Reese Witherspoon's movie called Wild, which is based on the book of that name by Cheryl Strayed. So I can't tell If like I'm just going to enjoy this moment, that books are cool, or if there's a real outreach and a real effort to understand, which makes sense, that books are a great source of stories.
1: Yeah, I think it's both. And if you look at the you know deals that are made by publishers every day, you'll read about movie rights sold when a book isn't even out yet. That's Mm. a very you know standard thing. But I'm noticing also more more entertainment screen people are, more Hollywood people are letting their fans know about the books they love. I noticed on Shonda Rhimes's website, she's the creator of Scandal. She has like a regular book feature and it's um, Reese Witherspoon, of course. Uh, it's all started with Oprah, I guess, yeah. but they do have a tremendous power now in um, bringing these books to the screen.
0: I haven't read most of these books, but a book that I did read and adored when it came out, and have seen the adaptation, which is on TV. I think, or I, I, you know, when I see it on TV, I don't know if it came from Netflix or a channel, but um, and that's the book Mudbound. Yeah, and that's based on a book by Hillary Jordan. So I love the book, and I thought the film did a brilliant job, a brilliant job of depicting the the essence of what the book was about. It didn't feel commercialized. It didn't feel exploitive. It just felt like a beautifully executed adaptation of the book. Yes, and— in
1: fact, you know, it was it, it so captured the imagination of the director D. Rees uh, that she wrote a, a monologue for Mary J. Blige's character
2: hmm. um,
1: to, to flesh out what she thought was a very powerful character in her mind as she read the book, and she wrote the screenplay. The director D. Rees did and and wrote it for Mary J. Blige and. Made it into a real part for her. Yeah, and I think it. You know, I haven't.
0: I haven't seen Hillary. I don't actually know much about Hillary Jordan herself. Um, do you? You know, I. 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 I don't know that much about her, but I like everything she writes. Mm-hmm. It's tremendous exposure for a mm. writer to get this amount of attention to their work. Sure. Imagine the next time she goes to sell a manuscript.
1: Yeah. Not to mention that she's. Captured, she's probably got a good friend now in Dee Reese, at least, and, and, and Mary J. Ply.
0: Yeah, so that's, that's right. It, it,
1: it brings these writers very much into the Hollywood mix, and they sit there on set many times working with the screenwriters, sometimes being screenwriters themselves.
0: How did you start in this career? Did you start out as a journalist and then went into covering arts and culture, or was that your objective right from the beginning?
1: Oh, uh, no. I started out covering um, a kind of uh, Washington, very wire service political beat and worked my way through many different kinds of hard news beats and then came to the journal back in 2005 working more on the features side. I think just knowing that the basics of reporting can get you a long way with even a lifestyle, culture, beat like this.
0: Well, you do a great job. I always look forward to articles that are under your byline. And Ellen, the question I ask all our guests is, what's the book that changed your life?
1: Charlotte's Web, because it made me... (laughs) It made me love reading. And I could not believe I remember reading that book and I didn't know how it ended. And I could not believe that a writer would kill Mm. its heroine. I was shocked. I didn't even think it could be done. And I love that book. And I love E.B. White. And I just recently read that book to my five-year-old son. And I warned him about it. I said, it's going to be very emotional. I just want you to prepare yourself. There's a, a sad ending. And I wept as I read the end mm. to him, and he was fine, of course. So <laughs> so it's just got a very special place in my heart.
0: You know what I did last year? I had somebody told me, I hadn't known this before, that E.B. White reads the audiobook for Charlotte's Web. For one, I love E.B. White's adult writing. He spent a lot of time in Maine, not far from where my family spends time in Maine. So I've always felt an attachment to him, but I've never heard his voice. And I expected this sort of patriarchal kind of refined voice. Yeah. And, and he's he's got a pretty serious New York accent. It was... <laughs> But it, that's great. If if you like Charlotte's Web and you haven't heard the audio, having E.B. White read it to you is pretty delicious. Oh, I can't wait. We'll definitely (laughs) cue that one up. Okay, great. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for taking uh, the time. We've been joined by Ellen Gammerman, who covers arts and culture for the Wall Street Journal. She's written a great piece about the 12 books to read this winter, and then there are six more. Uh, You can come to our podcast, bookpodcast.com, and you'll be happy all winter with all the books that Ellen has rounded up. So, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
1: thanks, Jackson. And it
0: was fun. Thanks again to Alan Gammerman. Now let's hear my conversation with Jeff Goodell, the author of The Water Will Come. We have certainly heard the doomsday scenarios of the impact of climate change, the warming ocean, the melting glaciers, and the rising sea levels. And we have witnessed what seems like unprecedented destruction by hurricanes like Sandy, Irma, Harvey, and Maria. Yet most of us only have a vague understanding of what is causing what, how quickly and how destructively it'll all happen. Today, we are joined by Jeff Goodell, the author of a new book, The Water Will Come Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World, which explains, enlightens, and provokes us to pay attention. Jeff's a contributing editor of Rolling Stone. He's previously written five books, including those about the coal industry, geoengineering, and even a memoir about growing up in Silicon Valley. And he's covered climate change for 15 years for The New York Times, WIRED, The New Republic, and has appeared on all the major networks on energy and environmental issues. Jeff, welcome to Just the Right Book.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Jeff, you start your book with a a devastating fictional account of 2037 Miami. Share with us your apocalyptic view of that pretty little city in (laughs) just a few short years
2: well i start started the book with with a vision of what would happen if a big storm um like one of the ones that we saw this year, like Irma or Maria or something um hit hit miami um you know a decade or so two decades in the future when sea level is maybe a, a foot higher than it is today and and it, the point is to really give a sense of um how devastating a hurricane, uh, a big hurricane, will be as um, sea levels rise. And then really suggest how difficult it's going to be to rebuild that city. I mean, Mm. we're used to thinking about um, rebuilding after hurricanes, and we've done that in New Orleans and Houston, and hopefully we're going to do that in Puerto Rico. But as sea levels start to rise and these cities, their sort of very uh, existence becomes more threatened, the question of rebuilding in a place like where Miami is located is going to become more and more questionable. And I try to kind of suggest that in, in this opening about, you know, raise the question of will Miami be rebuilt after a big storm like that?
0: You know, and it raises a couple of issues um, that I'll come back to about how the insurance system works and this, the the way in which some of what we're doing is actually motivating people to build right back on the spot that they were, but one of the most frightening or startling pieces that you had in the book was a conversation with a prominent developer in Miami by the name of Jorge Perez. And you know, somewhere else in the book, maybe not in the context of that conversation, you mentioned um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's stages of grief, and the first starts with uh, denial. Relate to us the conversation with him and what you made of his view of the impact of climate change.
2: Well, Jorge Perez has been described as the Trump of the tropics. Um, He's by far the largest developer uh, in the Miami area. Uh, He's built, by some estimates, one out of five um, condos uh, in in Miami Beach and Miami-Dade County. And uh, I've been trying to interview him for this book for a while because getting the perspective of the developers who are such a powerful force in Miami are is really important, and I'd, I'd spoken to somebody who really wanted to speak to Mr. Perez. And it just so happened that um, when I was at a, uh, a talk at the uh, Perez Art Museum, which is uh, named after him because he was one of the largest donors, the largest donor to the museum, uh, he was there, and I uh, basically went up to him while he, he was standing in line to get his... Uh, book autographed by the artist who uh, was having a show that night and asked him about how sea level rise, you know, influenced his ideas about developing Miami and purchasing real estate. And and he basically just said to me, you know, it hasn't, it doesn't, I don't think about it. I found that sort of incredibly difficult to believe for a, a savvy guy like that. Right. But then he said things like, you know, um, what does it matter? You know, in the future, I'm going to be dead anyway, which is a deeply cynical kind of point of view for someone whose work is, you know, really, you know, designing and building Miami right now. And the sort of abject kind of dereliction of responsibility for what what kind of a future uh, we're building in places like Miami was uh, frightening on one level and kind of upsetting on another level. And Admirably honest on on another level because you know he said we build to code and I just build to code and what the, whatever the building code tells me I can do I do and it was a sort of blunt business point of view about about you know mm-hmm. it's not my job to think about this and in a certain way he's right
0: and so did you come away from that conversation Jeff thinking that he doesn't buy the theory. Or it doesn't really matter whether he buys the theory because this is in his economic best interest and he's not breaking the law. And so there you have it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, he's my, this is my own understanding, but I think that Mr. Perez is a very smart man and he has uh, he has to know kind of what the risks are and what's happening uh, and what's going to happen in places like Miami, but um, he also is a businessman and, um, you know, he makes, the way he makes the most money in building his buildings is by building as big a building as he can, as close to the water as he can, um, to the building codes that are current law. And, you know, for a developer, you know, by the time they, they have like a five-year investment horizon. Mm. After five years, they, they're basically out. And so when you think about the future and see the double rides things are going to happen five you know 15 20 years down the line where the the impacts are going to be really severe uh, and longer um, that's beyond you know his immediate time horizon so it's it's easy for to see why from a from a blunt business point of view you can just say this is not my problem
0: you know when i read that sentence of his you just realize it's about the most cynical kind of statement that does not hold a wide view of others' interest kind of stunning. I mean, you would think a guy in his position could be taking a leadership role and still be economically viable in accommodating what is known and reacting to
2: it. Yep, and there certainly are developers in Miami that I've talked to who, you know, are trying to to do that, to think about how to you know reshape the city so that it has a sort of more sustainable future uh, and how to build differently. But in a certain way, Mr. Perez is is correct. It's really the job of the political leadership yeah. of of the city. Um, to make these decisions and to change building codes, to change land usage, all change tax structure, all the kinds of things that need to be done in order to encourage this, um, you know, this sort of transformation of the city that needs to happen. So, in, a, in an odd way, I came out with a kind of grudging respect for his sort of just complete blunt honesty about this.
0: This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by Better Help. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com writebook. We are living in stressful times, and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best-for-you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WriteBook today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com WriteBook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book. Yeah. And, you know, that brings to mind, you've got a chapter in the book called Air Force One, and uh, you went with um, Obama to uh, Alaska, and he was, he is the first sitting president um, to visit the Arctic. And one of the things that you uh, talk about, so here he was extremely engaged, articulate, passionate about this, yet you end up saying that the visit really, you have to really come to the conclusion that this was just a very good political PR thing. And he went on to explain to you sort of the reality, the political reality of legislating remedies. Uh Um, So share with us what that conversation you had with him with was like, and what does that portend for the difficulty of there really being a political solution as opposed to developers, for instance, taking the lead?
2: Yeah, well, my trip to Alaska with President Obama was really uh, extraordinary, especially uh, in hindsight. Uh, So I I spent a couple of days in in Alaska and in the Arctic with, with President Obama, and the explicit purpose of that trip was to raise the awareness of the risks of climate change and to build momentum towards the Paris Climate Agreement, which was coming up in December of that year. This was in 2015. And, um, you know, so it was was a PR effort in that respect, in the sense that the whole point of it was to, you know, gain awareness and to to try to draw people's attention to um, the risks of of climate change. And Alaska and the Arctic is a very good place to do it.
0: Sort of PR in the best sense of the word, right? To be persuasive on a topic that you want consensus.
2: Right. Exactly. And, you know, President Obama understood very well that in order to you know, build a kind of political consensus to do the kinds of things like uh, putting limits on greenhouse gas emissions, which we need to do if we want to slow global warming, uh, needed political support. And to, to, give, to build political support, you had to do things like this. He was very outspoken about, you know, the the need to do that, to put some of, you know, political muscle behind this. And um, this, what, this trip was an, an attempt to do that. And you know, I spent uh, an hour and a half or so sitting alone with him in a classroom uh, in in, uh, in Alaska after he had given a big speech, talking to him about the political strategies behind uh, his ideas about climate change and about climate science. And, you know, he was an extraordinarily knowledgeable about all this. Um, you know, I'm not a blind, you know, Obama groupie or anything. I had written um, much critical stuff about yeah. him, especially in his first term. Um, but it was really extraordinary, the, the, the depth of his knowledge about, about climate science and about, you know, the the, po- the international politics of all this. And, you know, I think he really viewed this as one of his, you know, what he had hoped to be one of his sort of legacy achievements in the second term of his presidency.
0: And, you know, just as an aside, I mean, I the, there's so much about the book, Jeff, to rave about. And on the one hand, you've got very thoughtful, scientific information that was very educational. I'll come to that in a minute. But I love the way you describe sitting in that classroom in the school in Alaska that Obama spoke to before a thousand people, and even your description of the plastic chair and the ease with which he held himself and conversed with you, you know, was a a representation of the human element, I think, that you bring to the book in a skillful storytelling quality that just makes you rip through this book as if it were a thriller, which which in a way... (laughs) Unfortunately, it is a thriller.
2: Right, right.
0: (laughs) But, Jeff, let's take a minute to go back um, to help our listeners understand sort of the basics of the conversation. So you talk about that you, in the book, that you often hear about the disappearance of the snows in Kilimanjaro or the glaciers in Patagonia, but in the context of drowning cities, land-based glaciers won't contribute much. What really matters is what happens on the two big blocks of ice at either end of the earth. You then go on um, to to talk about West Antarctica. And you describe the impact of what you refer to as floating ice shelves on the one hand, and the melting of glaciers on the other hand, and what each one is doing to the rising sea levels. Would you share that with us?
2: Sure. Sea level rise is, uh, it really is, as you pointed out, just a question of how fast the two big ice cubes at the top and bottom of the world melt. And, you know, for a long time, um, scientists thought they had a pretty good understanding of it because you know, ice physics is Complicated, but um, it's not that complicated. You can calculate how big a a chunk of ice it's going to, how long it's going to take to melt, given a certain temperature and things like that. And if if the whole question was about, you know, sort of essentially surface melt, like how fast the big ice cubes in Greenland and Antarctica would melt, it's a pretty straightforward calculation. Um, But what happened has happened in the last decade or so is that um, scientists have come to understand that um it's it's much more complex than that and um one place where that complexity is most visible and most sort of dangerous is in West Antarctica, where they're beginning to understand that the warming of the ocean, which is you know absorbing a, a large percentage of the heat that we're releasing into the atmosphere, or that is building up in the atmosphere as a result of greenhouse gases, is going into the oceans, and those oceans are getting underneath some of the glaciers in uh, the big ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland too, but especially in Antarctica, and they're beginning to melt the ice sheets um, from below, and because of the shape of the topography, particularly West Antarctica, which is like these giant uh, ice sheets sort of like sitting on a lip of a bowl, Mm. Um, that, that, that water is starting to get underneath the lip of the bowl and kind of going down into the bowl. And melting these ice sheets uh, way back uh, deep in, in, on the on the continent from from beneath. And one of the alarming things that is that scientists in the last decade or so are, are starting to figure out is that you know ice melts at a certain rate, but it could collapse much faster. Mm. And and they're very concerned about a collapse of the ice sheets, especially in West Antarctica, uh, due to this melting um, underneath. And if that kind of thing happens, we could see a much more rapid level rise than anyone really anticipated. Um, You know, so I just know that in the past, they have very good evidence that in the past uh, we've had times when the seas rose um, 13 feet in a single century, and they have good reason to think that uh, these West Antarctic ice sheets may have been responsible for that. And if we got anything like a Like that kind of rate of sea level rise, you know, you don't have to think too hard about what that would mean for coastal cities around the world. Miami, New York, Boston, Shanghai, Jakarta—you know, you name it. The Netherlands—you uh, know, thirteen feet of sea level rise or anything like that in the space of a single century would be absolutely devastating. So, no one's saying that that is exactly going to happen again, but the alarms are um, rising among scientists, and they understand that um, we could see much faster sea level rise than they had anticipated even a short time ago.
0: Uh, one of the things that I—one of the little things that I loved is in this uh, part of the book where you explain what you've just synthesized for us, you have a sentence, which I think I have heard a couple of people say, well, if ice melts in a glass, it's, there's not more liquid. But what you explain in the book is it's a difference if these glaciers are, which the ice sheets are sort of holding back, if these glaciers start melting. I mean, I'm putting it very simplistically. Um, then that really is adding mass to the body of water.
2: Right. So, yeah, it's very important to distinguish between um, ice that's already floating uh, exactly. on, on the ocean, like a large a large part of the sea ice in the Arctic uh, is already floating. And so when we hear about, you know, sea ice melting in the Arctic um, around, you know, the North Pole area, things like that, that's not a big concern. Uh, and same similar with um, the ice shelves in Antarctica, like um, we saw recently in the news this Ball about the Larsen Sea ice shelf, the big crack in the Sea ice shelf, and that, and that kind of coming off the, um, uh, West Antarctica. Those are not of big concern because they're already floating. Right. But um, in places in, like Antarctica, they are of some concern because they also act like buttresses, kind of holding back the big ice sheets or glaciers, either phrase is correct. Uh, that are that are based on the land, on the and land. when those when those big glaciers on the land begin sliding or collapsing into the sea, that's like dumping a whole you know uh, box full of ice cubes into a glass, and then you see how the water rises mm. then. So it's it's purely the land based glaciers in Greenland and Antarctica that are the the real problem for sea level rise.
0: And in the book, you've got this um, eloquent description of being there with Jake Box, where you're actually walking on land where there was not that long ago
2: a glacier. Right. He, we were we were in Greenland and we were flying a, across some of the glaciers with in a helicopter um, looking for areas that he was uh, wanted to set down in to do some of his research and uh, Jason uh, is a glaciologist who was he's an American glaciologist who now lives in Denmark and he spent a lot of time probably as much as anyone uh, in studying the ice sheets in Greenland and, and he recognized the, the this one area where the ice where the glacier had retreated and there was bare ground and he insisted that the helicopter pilot uh, put the helicopter down there and jumped out of the we jumped out of the helicopter he christened it new climate land mm. um, because this land had not been visible to sunlight in something like 20,000 years or something like that and was only now being revealed because the, the the ice sheets are melting so fast that they're you know revealing new new parts of the earth that have been buried under ice for a very long time
0: Jeff you t- talked about just a couple of uh, minutes ago about a time in the past uh, where the sea levels rose 13 feet. And in early in the book, you talk about the story of Noah in the Old Testament or the even earlier story of the flood in the epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which have geological confirmation in a flood, I think, 7,000 years ago in the Black Sea. So when... when I read that. I thought, well, does this suggest that emissions may be a problem, but what we're witnessing is part of the long arc of the ebb and flow that is the geological life on the planet Earth?
2: Well, I mean, that's uh, certainly it's certainly true that, you know, sea levels have risen and fallen uh, as much as 400 feet o- over sort of geologic time, um, and that's related to, you know, the natural cycles of uh, warming and cooling, related to volcanism, volcanoes, uh, um, related to, um, you know, Changes in sunlight and all of that um and these kind of patterns are very well understood by uh, geologists who are, who are who study sort of deep millennial time. but what's happening today is altogether different i mean the the um, amount of c o two we're putting into the atmosphere is Um, forcing this warming at a much faster rate than would have normally happened under Mm -hmm. the sort of natural cycles that, that we would be going through. And this is very well established because this is a very common this has been a, a topic of people who are skeptical about the reality of climate change for a very long time. And, um, scientists have studied this, you know, to death and there's no, it, it's not even a, um, debatable point. You right. know, the, uh, the idea that, uh, you know, CO2 molecule traps heat, uh, has been well established for a hundred years. We know we're putting more and more CO2 into the atmosphere. It's easy to count. Uh, the, the, um, So what we're basically doing by dumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is just sort of, you know, putting our foot on the accelerator of the sort of natural cycle. We're just making it happen much, much, much faster than it would have happened if we weren't doing this.
0: You know, throughout the book, you've got different scientists, and there's a range of predictions, and they're accelerating in the last couple of years of how many feet, when. Where do you think there's some sort of consensus about what would happen if, in fact, we don't do something pretty dramatically pretty quickly. What would you say is the consensus around what could happen?
2: Well, I would say that the consensus now is, so the scientists so talked about a range of, you know, one to three or three and a half feet of sea level rise by the end of this century. And then it would continue after that, but, but that would give that gives you a sense of the kind of pace that they had been thinking about. But because of a lot of recent science that's come out in the last decade and understanding of these risks in West Antarctica, for example, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the kind of top agency, science agency in America, now has the top end of sea level rise by the end of the century as much as seven feet. mm if you look at the sort of risk parameters of it, the 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 sort of likelihood is something in the maybe four to five foot range. You know, it's it's very difficult to know, and uh, I don't think that scientists and the scientists that I have talked to, and I've talked to basically all the best ice scientists in the world, they're not sure that they're ever going to be able to get uh, any more certain than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that they do know, and is not uncertain at all, is that. We're going to have a significant amount of sea level rise, and we're going to have it uh, no matter what we do with carbon emissions. Even if we all, everyone sold their SUVs and and rode skateboards to work, uh, we would still have significant sea level rise uh, in this century and beyond because of the heat that's already built up uh, in the atmosphere. On the list of things to do, doing everything that we can to consume less fossil fuels, uh, shift as quickly as possible to renewable energy is really important because even though we can't stop sea level rise, if we slow down the rate of emissions, we might be able to have some impact on the ultimate amount that it rises and perhaps to slow it down somewhat. Cutting emissions is the number one thing. But it's purely as far as sea level rise. The thing that really needs to start happening is to realize that we have to adapt to it, Um, Mm. That means different things in different places, and obviously um sea level rise is not a serious concern if you're living in Atlanta, Georgia, or if you're living in you know um, Albany, New York, or something like that. but if you're living on the outer banks, if you're living in Norfolk, Virginia, if you're living in
0: I have a house in Castine, maine, Jeff. I want to know particularly about Castine maine
2: <laughs> well I don't know is it how what's the is it uh, Maine is a pretty uh, elevated rocky coast so we're on the water. <laughs> oh well then you're in trouble. <laughs> if you're on the water, you're by definition in trouble. All right. I'm very concerned that we're going to see a significant devaluation in real estate uh prices along mm. um you know low-lying coastlines in the very near future.
0: As you say and you tell a couple of stories of, you know, people who have a lot at risk, yet they've rebuilt their houses right where they were, you know, whether it's New Orleans or Houston or Florida or Miami. And, you know, this tug for people to, like, not—you talk about Tom's River, for instance, in New Jersey, where they had a storm and there was a a reasonable plan put together to sort of move the town back. And yet, at the end of the day, the 83-year-old mayor who— you know, let everything get built right back
2: where it was. Right. so there's a lot of inertia uh, to rebuild things and keep doing things exactly the way we've been doing them, partly because of skepticism about the reality of climate change and sea level rise, partly because people just um, keep doing things the way they've always been doing them and until it's you know really necessary to change. Uh, and that's one of the things that's so difficult about this is that, you know, we see that in Puerto Rico right now. There's a number of people down there trying to say, we need to rebuild Puerto Rico in a different way. But then there's a lot of contractors and others down there who are just saying, we need to do this as quickly and cheaply as possible and put it back uh, more or less the way it was. Uh, I think that it's really an important moment to think differently differently. Um, Especially for people who own coastal real estate, again, and I, I'm a big believer in you know people should be able to live kind of wherever they want. If they want to live right on the water and have their house at risk for sea level rise and storms and things like that, that's great as long as they understand the risks. Um, but I, my concern is the people who don't understand the risks yeah. and that, that that it's not really being talked about openly and. Uh, clearly, but another thing that's really happening that's going to that's going to have a big impact is that Moody's, the big um, credit rating, rating service, yep. um, has has recently um, decided to take um, climate adaptation measures into account when they consider credit ratings for cities and states. Wow! I think that that's going to be a very powerful lever in beginning to force communities to take this seriously. There, there's an inevitability about uh, retreating from the coastline is going to happen and it's going to happen faster and slower in different places, depending on the geology and the geography and a lot of factors. But uh, there's an inevitability to this. Uh, a place like South Florida with six feet of sea level rise is uh, a lot of it is underwater. Yeah. And um, I don't care, you know, how high you raise your house if um, the streets and the sewage lines, and the airport is all underwater, you know, having a house on stilts is not really going to be very appealing for most people.
0: You also talk about geoengineering, and you've written a book on geoengineering, and one of the stories you tell in the book is about a conference 10 years ago where um, a gentleman by the name of Lowell Wood, who was a protege of Edward Teller, who was the inventor of the hydrogen bomb. And Lowell Wood discussed sort of a simply but not wildly expensive geoengineering solution where he was, I forget exactly what it was, but he was injecting some sort of fluid into the air.
2: Sulfate particles, yeah.
0: Right. And... What is geoengineering, and does geoengineering present any kind of potential solution to climate change?
2: Well, geoengineering is uh, defined as sort of large-scale manipulation, human manipulation of the Earth's climate. So there are a number of different strategies um, that one could use, including kind of artificially creating clouds that help to reflect away sunlight and there was ideas about um, dumping iron into the ocean, which would stimulate plankton blooms, which would absorb CO2. Uh, I don't think any of those are really going to happen. I think that what um, there's more and more talk about and more and more kind of momentum behind is the idea of uh, exactly the thing you described from Lowell Wood, which is essentially creating artificial volcanoes. We know mm-hmm. that you know natural volcanoes like Pinatubo which erupted in the Philippines um, in uh, 1992, it put a lot of stuff, particles, up into the stratosphere. And Pinatubo actually lowered the temperature of the Earth by about a degree for a year because these little tiny particles act as little uh, reflectors up there and in the stratosphere, and they reflect away a little bit of sunlight, and that helps cool the planet. So there are a number of scientists, um, some of whom I really respect, who are looking into the possibility of basically using high-altitude jets to uh, distribute a small amount of particles high in the stratosphere um, to reflect away some sunlight and to uh, cool the Earth a little bit. This is not being done yet. There's not even been any field experiments, and there's a lot of risk to it. There's a lot of unknowns, but within the climate models and things that they're where they've been sort of researching this, it does look like it would have the effect of lowering the uh, temperature of the Earth and maybe buying us... The more time to to um, get off of fossil fuels, um, but it's not a get out of jail free card. It's not an easy, quick fix. Mm-hmm. It um, uh, it doesn't solve many of the big problems with climate change, such as uh, acidification of the oceans. Um, it doesn't. It may have other kind of knock on effects, like shifting the patterns of monsoons and and all of that. And there's going to be a lot of pushback about it. So it's not going to be a fix for sea level rise. It, it, it can help slow the melting of the surface, melting of glaciers in Greenland and Antarctica, perhaps. Um, but it's not going to really have an impact on the warming of the ocean because that warmth is already kind of so deep in, in the system. So it's a, it's a tool that we don't really know how powerful it is yet. And it's something that, you know, may get deployed in the coming decades as the urgency becomes clearer and clearer. But I don't think anybody who has, you know, a house in South Florida should be counting on geoengineering to solve their problem. Why
0: hasn't there been more enthusiasm for nuclear energy?
2: Well, I mean, one of the problems with nuclear energy is it's just expensive. I mean, it's um, you know, building a nuclear plant is you know billions of dollars more expensive
0: than, than ruining our cities. Well, it's a
2: different kind <laughs> of expense, you know. Um, just, just saying, I'm sort of yeah. I mean, I, I uh, nuclear power is. I'm sort of agnostic about it. I mean, I'm not. A, I'm not a big proponent of it. I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not. Um, I don't rail against it. I think that. You know, especially the new kind of generation of nuclear plants are much safer. There's many new possibilities. And I and I love the idea of, you know, obviously a carbon-free uh, energy source. But um, the economics are just, you know, really daunting. And mm-hmm. um, the liability issues and there's a lot of, you know, nimbyism against any kind of nuclear plant. It's just very, very difficult to get nuclear plants built, uh, especially in America. China's doing a better job of it. But, um you know, it's just not happening, and um, for, for a, a wide variety of reasons. Even if you know, some of us wish wish that it did.
0: You, you know, you talk about retreat as one solution, which you talk about in the book. The other that you uh, talk about, or or what some smart cities are doing, a, as a way of living with rising water levels.
2: Right. So there's a um, you know the, that's certainly you know, one of the conclusions that they've come to, say, in the Netherlands, which, you know, 30% of the country is below sea level, and they've, for a thousand years, they've been building dikes and various barriers to keep water out. But they're coming to the conclusion that they can't do that much longer because these uh, dikes and walls are getting higher and higher, and the risk of failure is getting greater and greater. So they really understand that the future of the country is going to be in figuring out other ways of sort of living with water. And that's kind of the become a mantra for a lot of um, cities and urban planners and architects who are thinking about this future we're moving into.
0: Yeah. I hope, or I keep hoping, that even for those that um, want to ignore the scientific evidence of what will happen, as the economic damage mounts, like it has with these hurricanes that people will get just practical about the fact that you can't keep spending billions and billions of dollars resisting what is irresistible.
2: I mean it's just obvious that we're going to have to retreat because no other option is economically kind of viable. I mean mm. uh,
0: one of the things that I think people falsely comfort themselves with is not, well, it won't be in my lifetime. And, you know, as you said in the book, it might be true for the 83-year-old mayor of Tom's River, but it's probably not true for the 30-year-old in Houston or Manhattan or Miami.
2: Right. And one of the things I, I really try to communicate in the book is that I mean, silver rise is a problem right now. Um, It's a problem, you know, when you go to Miami Beach during king tides right now. I mean, I was there in November uh, and I've been there. King tides happen every fall. And, you know, a, a good percentage of Miami Beach is flooded already. And that's just going to continue getting worse and worse. Towns and counties and municipalities in Florida and in Norfolk are spending huge amounts of money Dealing with roads eroding right now because of the higher tides and more erosion. Uh, You have more and more beaches being washed away. I mean, even six inches of sea level rise is a very big deal. And um, it begins to get very, very costly very quickly.
0: Yeah. And I think you make a great case in the book. Before we close, Jeff, this is on a different topic. But the question I like to ask all our authors is what's the book that changed your life?
2: Uh, I think the book that changed my life was Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I read I grew up in California and my grandfather was a landscape contractor and actually knew John Steinbeck and um, I read Grapes of Wrath when I was uh, you know maybe 14 or 15 years old mm-hmm. and and um, it was very profound for me in the sense that um, you know it was written by a person whose name I kind of knew and was about the world that I lived in. and um, But it was also about uh, a novel about a real thing that happened in the world. You know, it was about this thing called the Dust Bowl and um, the people who migrated from that. And, you know, I, I didn't really think about it until uh, I had finished writing this book and things. But, you know, uh, I'm trying in some weird way to do a similar kind of thing with talking about the Sort of human impacts of a mm. massive uh, environmental event. Um, I'm of course not John Steinbeck, and my book is not a novel. But um, that book that book really, I think, started my kind of trajectory as a writer.
0: I would say that uh, Jeff, you've done a pretty exquisite a job of both making a scientific and a human compelling argument i think i think your book addresses both head and heart in a way that should move people i think move people to either think about this differently or to decide to um actually become active in changing the way things happen We've been talking with Jeff Goodell, the author of The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World. Jeff, I want to thank you for writing the book for your 15 years of arduously and intellectually pursuing this issue, and of course to thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for saying all that. That means a lot to me. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to today's guest. Please make sure to pick up a copy of Jeff Fidel's book, The Water Will Come, which is out now. But you'll love it. And for a complete list of all the books we talked about today, including all the books Ellen talked about, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keogh. Many thanks to all of you for listening.